Part two of chapter three of Little Eve Edgerton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Eve Edgerton by Eleanor Hallowell Abbott. Part two of chapter three. Once outside in the darkness, her confusion cleared a little. It was late, she reasoned, very, very late, long after midnight, probably, for of all the shadowy, flickering line of evening smokers that usually crowded that particular stretch of veranda, only a single distant glow or two remained. Yet even now, in the almost complete isolation of her surroundings, the old inherent bashfulness swept over her again and warred chaotically with her insistent purpose. As stealthily as possible, she crept along the dark wall to the one bright spot that flared forth like a lantern lens from the gay ballroom. Crept along, crept along, a plain little girl in a plain little dress, yearning like all the other plain little girls of the world, in all the other plain little dresses of the world, to press her wistful little nose just once against some dazzling toy shop window. With her fingers groping at last into the actual shutters of that coveted ballroom window, she scrunched her eyes up perfectly tight for an instant, and then opened them, staring wide at the entrancing scene before her. "'Oh!' said little Eve Edgerton. "'Oh!' The scene was certainly the scene of a most madcap summer carnival. Palms of the far December desert were there and roses from the near-familiar August gardens. The swirl of chiffon and lace and silk was like a rainbow-tinted breeze. The music crashed on the senses like blows that wasted no breath in subtler argument. Naked shoulders gleamed at every turn beneath their diamonds. Silk stockings bared their sheen at each new, rompish step. And through the dizzy mystery of it all, the haze, the maze, the vague, audacious unreality, grimly conventional, blatantly tangible white shirt fronts surrounded by great black dots of men went slapping by each with its share of fairyland in its arms. Why, they're not dancing, gasped with Leave Edgerton. They're just prancing. Even so, her own feet began to prance, and very faintly across her cheekbones a little flicker of pink began to glow. Then, very startlingly, behind her a man's shadow darkened suddenly, and sensing instantly that this newcomer also was interested in the view through the window, she drew aside courteously to give him his share of the pleasure. In her briefest glance she saw that he was no one whom she knew, but in the throbbing witchery of the moment he seemed to her suddenly like her only friend in the world. "'It's pretty, isn't it?' she nodded toward the ballroom. Casually the man bent down to look until his smoke-scented cheek almost grazed hers. It certainly is, he conceded amiably. Without further speech for a moment, they both stood there, peering into the wonderful picture. Then altogether abruptly, and with no excuse whatsoever, little Eve Edgerton's heart gave a great big lurch, and wringing her small brown hands together so that by no grave mischance should she reach out and touch the stranger's sleeve as she peered up at him i can dance 
drawled little Eve Edgerton. Shrewdly, the man's glance flashed down at her. Quite plainly, he recognized her now. She was that funny little Edgerton girl. That's exactly who she was. In the simple, old-fashioned arrangement of her hair, in the personal neatness but total indifference to fashion of her prim, high-throated gown, she represented, frankly, everything that he thought he most approved in woman. But nothing under the starry heavens at that moment could have forced him to lead her as a partner into that dazzling maelstrom of mode and modernity because she looked so horridly eccentric and conspicuous compared to the girls that he thought he didn't approve of at all. "'Why, of course you can dance. I only wish I could,' he lied gallantly and stole away as soon as he reasonably could to find another partner, trusting devoutly that the darkness had not divulged his actual features. Five minutes later, through the window-frame of her magic picture, little Eve Edgerton saw him pass, swinging his share of fairyland in his arms. And close behind him followed Barton, swinging his share of fairyland in his arms. Barton, the wonderful, at his best, Barton the Wonderful with his best, the blonde, blonde girl of the marvelous gowns and hats. There was absolutely no doubt whatsoever about them. They were the handsomest couple in the room. Furtively from her hidden corner, little Eve Edgerton stood and watched them. To her appraising eyes, there were at least two other girls almost as beautiful as Barton's partner. But no other man in the room compared with Barton. Of that she was perfectly sure. His brow, his eyes, his chin, the way he held his head upon his wonderful shoulders, the way he stood upon his feet, his smile, his laugh, the very gesture of his hands. Over and over again as she watched, these two perfect partners came circling through her vision, solemnly graceful or rhythmically hoydenish, two fortune-favored youngsters born into exactly the same sphere, trained to do exactly the same things in exactly the same way, so that even now, with twelve years' difference in age between them, every conscious vibration of their beings seemed to be tuned instinctively to the same key. Bluntly, little Eve Edgerton looked back upon the odd, haphazard training of her own life. Was there anyone in this world whose training had been exactly like hers? Then suddenly her elbow went crooking up across her eyes to remember how Barton had looked in the stormy woods that night, lying half-naked and almost wholly dead at her feet. Except for her odd, haphazard training, he would have been dead. Barton the beautiful, dead, and worse than dead, buried, and worse than... Out of her lips a little gasp of sound rang agonizingly. And in that instant, by some trick fashion of the dance, the rollicking music stopped right off short in the middle of a note. The lights went out, the dancers fled precipitously to their seats. And out of the arbored gallery of the orchestra, a single swarthy-faced male singer stepped forth into the wan wake of an artificial moon, and lifted up a marvelous tenor voice in one of those weird folk songs of the far away that fairly tear the listener's heart out of his body. 
a song as sinisterly metallic as the hum of hate along a dagger blade, a song as rapturously surprised at its own divinity as the first trill of a nightingale, a song of purling brooks and green gray mountain fortresses, a song of quick sharp lights and long low lazy cadences, a song of love and hate, a song of all joys and all sorrows, and then death, the song of sex as nature sings it, the plaintive, wheedling, passionate song of sex as nature sings it yet in the faraway places of the earth. To no one else in that company probably did a single word penetrate. Merely stricken dumb by the vibrant power of the voice, vaguely uneasy, vaguely saddened, group after group of hoydenish youngsters huddled in speechless fascination around the dark edges of the hall. But to little Eve Edgerton's cosmopolitan ears, each familiar gypsyish word thus strangely transplanted into that alien room was like a call to the wild, from the wild. So, as to all repressed natures, the amount of self-expression comes once, without warning, without preparation, without even conscious acquiescence sometimes, the moment came to little Eve Edgerton. Impishly first, more as a dare to herself than as anything else, she began to hum the melody and sway her body softly to and fro to the rhythm. Then suddenly her breath began to quicken, and as one half hypnotized, she went clambering through the window into the ballroom, stood for an instant like a gray-white phantom in the outer windows, then, with a laugh as foreign to her own ears as to another, snatched up a great, square, shimmering silver scarf that gleamed across a deserted chair, stretched it taut by its corners across her hair and eyes, and with a queer little cry, half defiance, half appeal, a quick dart, a long undulating glide, merged herself into the dagger-blade the nightingale, the grim mountain fortress, the gay mocking brook, all the love, all the rapture, all the ghastly fatalism of that heartbreaking song. Bent as a bow, her lithe figure curved now right, now left, to the lilting cadence. Supple as a silken tube, her slender body seemed to drink up the fluid sound. No one could have sworn in that vague light that her feet even so much as touched the ground. She was a wraith, a fantasy, a fluctuant miracle of sound and sense. Tremulously the singer's voice faltered in his throat to watch his song come gray ghost true before his staring eyes. With scant restraint the crowd along the walls pressed forward half pleasure-mad to solve the mystery of the apparition. Abruptly the song stopped, the dancer faltered, lights blazed. A veritable shriek of applause went roaring to the rooftops. And little Eve Edgerton, in one wild, panic-stricken surge of terror, went tearing off through a blind alley of palms, dodging a café table, jumping an improvised trellis, a hundred pursuing voices yelling, Where is she? Where is she? The tell-tale tinsel scarf flapping frenziedly behind her, flapping, flapping, till at last between one high-garnished shelf and another it twined its vampirish chiffon 
around the delicate fronds of a huge potted fern. There was a jerk, a blur, a blow, the sickening crash of fallen pottery, and little Eve Edgerton crumpled up on the floor, no longer colorless, among the pale, dry, rainbow tints and shrill metallic glints of that most wondrous scene. Under her crimson mask, when the rescuers finally reached her, she lay as perfectly disguised as even her most bashful mood could have wished. All around her, kneeling, crowding, meddling, interfering, frightened people queried, Who is she? Who is she? Now and again, from out of the medley, someone offered a half-articulate suggestion. It was the hotel proprietor who moved first. Clumsily but kindly, with a fat hand thrust under her shoulders, he tried to raise her head from the floor. Barton himself, as the most recently returned from the dark valley, moved next. Futilely, with a tiny wisp of linen and lace that he found at the girl's belt, he tried to wipe the blood from her lips. Who is she? Who is she? The conglomerate hum of inquiry rose and fell like a moan. Beneath the crimson stain on the little lace handkerchief, a trace of indelible ink showed faintly. Scowlingly, Barton bent to decipher it. Mother's little handkerchief, the marking read. Mother's? Barton repeated blankly. Then suddenly full comprehension broke upon him, and, horridly startled and shocked with a brand new realization of the tragedy, he fairly blurted out his astonishing information. Why, why, it's the little Edgerton girl, he hurled like a bombshell into the surrounding company. Instantly, with the mystery once removed, a dozen hysterical people seemed startled into normal activity. No one knew exactly what to do, but some ran for water and towels, and some ran for the doctor, and one young woman with astonishing acumen slipped out of her silk-white petticoat and bound it, blue ribbons and all, as best she could, around Eve Edgerton's poor little gashed head. "'We must carry her upstairs,' asserted the hotel proprietor. "'I'll carry her,' said Barton quite definitely. Fantastically, the procession started upward. Little Eve Edgerton, white as a ghost now in Barton's arms, except for that one persistent trickle of red, from under the loosening edge of her huge oriental-like turban of ribbon and petticoat, the hotel proprietor still worrying eternally how to explain everything, two or three well-intentioned women babbling inconsequently of other broken heads. In astonishingly slow response to as violent a knock as they thought they gave, Eve Edgerton's father came shuffling at last to the door to greet them. Like one half paralyzed with sleep and perplexity, he stood staring blankly at them as they filed into his rooms with their burden. "'Your daughter seems to have bumped her head,' the hotel proprietor began with professional tact. In one gasping breath, the women started to explain their version of the accident. Barton, as dumb as the father, carried the girl directly over to the bed and put her down softly half-lying, half-sitting, among the great pile of night-crumpled pillows. Some one threw a blanket over her. And above the top edge of that blanket, nothing of her showed, except the grotesquely twisted turban, the whole of one white eyelid, the half of the other, 
and just that single persistent trickle of red. Rapishly at that moment the clock on the mantelpiece choked out the hour of three. Already dawn was more than half a hint in the sky, and in the ghastly mixture of real and artificial light the girl's doom looked already sealed. Then very suddenly she opened her eyes and stared around. "'Eve!' gasped her father. "'What have you been doing?' Vaguely the troubled eyes closed and then opened again. "'I was trying to show people that I was a rose,' mumbled little Eve Edgerton. Swiftly her father came running to her side. He thought it was her deathbed statement. "'But, Eve,' he pleaded, "'why?' My own little girl! Why, my... Laboriously, the big eyes lifted to his. Mother was a rose, persisted the stricken lips desperately. Yes, I know, sobbed her father, but... but... But nothing, mumbled little Eve Edgerton. With an almost superhuman effort, she pushed her sharp little chin across the confining edge of the blanket. Vaguely unrecognizingly then for the first time her heavy eyes sensed the hotel proprietor's presence and worried their way across the tearful ladies to barton's harrowed face mother was a rose she began all over again mother was a rose mother was a rose she persisted babblingly and father g guessed it from the very first but as for me Weakly, she began to claw at her incongruous bandage. But as for me, she gasped, the way I'm fixed, I have to announce it. End of Part 2, Chapter 3